This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. If you uh, can come back to your seats, find a place to sit down. And uh, if you have a Bible with you, if you could open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you are new here, um, we certainly want to welcome you and let you know that it's just great to have you. We're, we're so glad to have you with us worshiping today. And we're, we're going through a book, a, a difficult book in some ways, the book of Ecclesiastes. And so uh, maybe I can give a very brief introduction if you're jumping in midstream with us. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is written by a guy, and uh, his name in Hebrew is Koheleth. His, uh, the Greek name would be Ecclesiastes. The English translation in our Bibles is the preacher, just calls himself the preacher. And uh, when you look at his biography, as you read through the book, you realize that uh, it sounds a lot like King Solomon. And while he never says he's King Solomon, uh, it certainly does appear that that's who wrote the book. And so he is on this life quest to sort of uh, find the meaning of life. So we've called this series, What's the Point? Because that's sort of what he's answering. What's the point of life? Uh, what are we here for? And so he walks us through his life in the early chapters where he, he goes through the different uh, experiences he's had. Uh, he is a man who's had tremendous wealth, tremendous power. He's had wine, women, and song, literally, is what he says in the first chapter. So he's a guy that has all of this stuff, and his conclusion is that I looked at all that stuff, life under the sun, meaning life without reference to God. I looked at life under the sun, and here's my conclusion, that life is meaningless. That, that life has no real meaning to it if you just look at the stuff of life. And so what he does is he shares that point of view, and then every so often he gives us a glimpse into what would be life with God. What's life like with God? And so there's this constant... Uh, thing that's going on about life without God and life with God. Now, the last two weeks, we've been looking, and he has been asking really deep philosophical questions. Uh, he, he's been asking, you know, why, uh, why is it like this, that righteous people who you would think would be blessed for their righteousness suffer, while wicked people who you'd think would be punished for their wickedness prosper? Why do things like that happen? And so he's asking all these questions. I mean, here's a key to understanding this guy named Ecclesiastes. He says stuff that you're not supposed to say in church. He, he, I'm not saying like bad words, but, uh, he, but he says stuff, this kind of stuff that people might be thinking but wouldn't really feel comfortable saying in a worship service. And uh, so if you're new... Um, this is one of those chapters, which I, I don't know how this passage will land on you, but there's a good chance that what you're going to find is this, this guy, the preacher, is going to mess with you. He is going to poke you. And he is going to take our theology today, specifically our theology of what does it mean to be godly or what does it mean to be spiritual, and he's going to tweak it. Sometimes I read and I say, man, God is just messing with us, it almost seems like, in the stuff he's saying here. Um, and Ecclesiastes does mess with us. So uh, I'm going to feel tempted this entire message, especially if you're new, <clears throat> you don't have the background. I'm going to be tempted to 
build fences and say, well, this is one point of view. It's all true, but it's not all the Bible says on the subject. So let me just say that up front, and I'll probably say that later as well. Uh, so what he's going to talk about today is going to give us a vision of what is real godliness like? What is real spirituality like? And it may be a little different than what we had anticipated. And he's going to mess with us along the way, saying all kinds of things that are going to strain us to bow before God and say, God, you are sovereign. We can't figure all things out. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 9. I'm going to read the first ten verses. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have, all also, have already perished. And for therever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he gives you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word which speaks to us. We thank you for complex teachings of Scripture And yet we want to understand simple responses to complex teachings, Lord. I pray that you would give us a heart today to simply uh, understand you, to see Christ in his grace and mercy, and to respond with hearts of trust and hearts of joy. God, we invite you to come by your Spirit and open our hearts, open our minds, our eyes, to behold wonderful things in your scripture this morning. And I pray that the effect would be that the intended joy behind this passage would be ours today. Lord, we ask that. I ask that you would fill me with the Spirit and that you would enable all of us to be hearers and doers of your word. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to talk about kind of three ideas that are in this text, and then I'm going to wrap it all up together in in a thematic idea at the very end. But here's the first idea. The first thing he talks about in this passage is that we are in God's hands even when it doesn't look like it. And one point he's going to make over and over is sometimes it does not look 
like we're in God's hands. Uh, sometimes it looks like we're left to trouble or to suffer, whatever it may be. Here's the background coming into chapter 9. In verse 17 of chapter 8, the last verse of chapter 8, he says, I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So he's saying, look, here's the pursuit of wisdom. This is presumably Solomon, wisest man to have ever lived. And he's saying, I I went on a search. You will not find out everything. You will not find out the secret things of God. You will not find out the hidden things of God, the decisions that God makes as a sovereign ruler that we don't know or don't understand. It's part of what it means to be a creature and not to be God, is that there is mystery in the way God acts And uh, we can affirm that he is always good, he is always loving, he is always holy, but we can't understand and connect the dots by what he does. So you'll never figure all that out, he says. But verse 1, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise, so these are the people of God he's describing, the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. He's making this wonderful affirmation that your life is in the hand of God. That that the people of God lie in God's hand. And if you look at the circumstances of life, you will not understand them all. But you have to, by faith, believe this truth that God holds us up. And when things don't make sense, it is still well with our soul because God holds on to us. And the hands that he holds us with, as Christians, we know, are loving hands. They are hands that have nail scars in them that demonstrate God's love for his people, that they are not hands to harm, but they are hands to care and to comfort and to sustain. They are hands to hold us no matter what happens. But this is an affirmation we must make by faith, that we are in his hands, because sometimes it does not look like it. Look at what he says next. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. So he's saying we're in hands, but if you were to look at it, if you were to look at circumstances, you wouldn't know if God hates you or loves you. This is one of those things he says that you're not supposed to say in church. Is that what he says is, I'm looking at life and I'm saying what? The same thing happens to everybody. So I'm looking around at life and I'm saying, that righteous person is really suffering And that sinner is prospering and loving life. So, does God love me or hate me? How's God relating to me? As his child, is he loving me or hating me? Here's what he's saying. You must understand and believe from the revelation of Scripture that God holds you in his hands. You cannot look at the circumstances of life and base God's love on how it's going any given day with you. I mean, we've all been tempted to say this, right? Maybe we wouldn't say, does God hate me? Maybe we would. We all look at our lives and say, man, God, if God's really for me, why is everybody at my work against me? Why aren't my finances working out? Why aren't my relationships working out? It almost feels like God just dislikes me, disfavors me. Or in a bad moment, God hates me. That's what it feels like. But he's saying you are in the righteous. The people of God are in his hand, regardless of what it looks like. Because he says, if you look around at life, What you'll find is that this whole list of people, verse 2, it's the same for all. What does it mean? The same kind of things happen to all kinds of people. For the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. So the person that comes down to worship in their day offers a sacrifice for their sins. 
So the churchgoer has problems just like the non-churchgoer, is what he says. Uh, The good one, so is the sinner. The one who swears is is the one who shuns an oath. So the, the person who makes a promise and keeps the promise has bad things happen to them just like the person who doesn't even keep a promise. That's what he says. So if you're looking under the sun, if you're looking at life to understand how God views you, you will draw bad conclusions sometimes. But by faith, we know that we are in his hands, that he loves us, that they're nail-scarred hands, we know in the New Testament as well. Verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And what is he saying? He's saying something a bit uncomfortable there on the surface. What he's saying is, when you look at life and you see that the same thing happens to the good and the righteous, that's evil, and God oversees all that. So is he saying God, is he ascribing evil to God? No, he is not ascribing evil to God. First of all, he's saying under the sun. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Under the sun is a phrase used throughout the book, and it's code language for this, life without God. It's as if there's no God, everything under the sun is just earthly, uh, physical, the life we can see, that there is no God. So if you look at life without reference to God, if your worldview is without reference to God, you will draw this conclusion. This is unrighteous that good people are suffering. That, that, that seems evil. Unless you know that there is a loving, kind and God, God who rules over all, and we don't understand everything he does, but he will, we talked about this last week, he will, in the end, judge unrighteousness. That he will, uh, in the end, punish unrighteousness eternally, so there is justice in the universe, but in this day we don't always see justice. So he says under the sun, that doesn't seem right without reference to God. The other thing he says very quickly is uh, an evil happens, the same thing happens to everybody. He quickly says the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and then after that they go to, be, they go to the dead. So what he's saying is Uh, Do bad things happen to good people? Yes, but in the strictest sense, there's no perfect person. So he's making the point that people are sinful, is what he's saying. So we live in a world where it appears evil that a righteous person would have something bad happen to them. But in the strictest sense of the word righteous, there is no one but Jesus who's perfect. So he's, he's making that point here as well. He's not charging God with evil, but he is saying under the sun, this is how it looks. His perspective is, is fairly bleak as he looks under the sun at this point without reference to God. So what's his opening point in these verses? It's that oftentimes life won't make sense. And you can't judge God's view of you as a Christian, uh, as a follower of Jesus, just by the circumstances that go around you. Because you're going to find some people that hate God, that have better circumstances than you. And you're going to find people that love God and, and are giving their life for him, martyred some places on the planet, and killed for their faith. And if you look at that as a measure of God's love, his approval um, or his disapproval, you will always be confused by looking at your circumstances. But we must know we are in the hands of God by faith. And the ultimate proof of that is the work of Jesus, who represents God's love to us that is so deep we can never understand the love and the care of God expressed to us in Christ. So don't look at your circumstances to make a decision about how God thinks of you or relates to you. Look in faith to the God who holds you. The second thing he says, which is a little surprising, is it's better to be alive than it is to be dead. What he says next, he who is, verse 4, he who is joined to the, with all the living has hope 
for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, uh, as Christians, we flinch at this impulse because it's the exact opposite of what you would hear at a Christian funeral, for instance. We would tend to say the person's in a better place. They're with Jesus. That's better than being on this earth. Yet he's saying it's better to be living than it is to be dead. So what does he mean by that? Is he, is he you know, going against what we find elsewhere in Scripture? Well, he's not. He's just making a very narrow point here that there are certain advantages that you have as a living person that you don't have as a dead person. And because of that, it's, it, it's, it's good to be living. Um, he, he says, I'd rather, have a, I'd rather be a, a living dog than a dead lion. Now, we can look at that and say, well, what's the, what's the analogy? We think of a dog, we think of a pet, you, you've got your, your, your pet Fluffy or Fido or whatever, and you love your pet, and you think, man, that's, that's a great pet. He's not talking about that kind of dog. In Israel and in much of the world today, if you travel around the world uh, or go very many places, you'll find out, especially in places where there is, is poverty, um, that, that it's not... Uh, the dogs aren't necessarily domesticated. You know, I've been places where I've seen the average dog is scrawny. You can see its ribs. It's got open wounds. There's flies around it, and it's just scavenging trash to eat. So it's kind of uh, really sad, uh, just a roving, scavenging dog. That's very common. He's not talking about a domesticated animal. And he says he talks about a lion. That's the most majestic, kingly, regal of animals. So he's saying, I'd rather be that scavenging dog with the flies and the oozing sores and the ribs and just struggling to make it. I'd rather be that than a regal king that's dead, is what he's saying. It's better to be alive is the point that he's making. So what are the advantages of being alive? Well, first of all, there's hope. With all the living, there is hope. What does he mean by that? Hope is looking forward. When you hope for something, you're looking forward, maybe for a change or for something better. When you're dead, it's done. It's done. Your, your eternity is set. But if you're living, there's still hope for change in this life. There's still time to change. There's still time to repent uh, in life. He says, verse 5, for the living... No, they will die, but the dead know nothing. So it's an advantage to know that life is short. If you're aware that life is short, you have time to change and respond to God. If you're dead, you don't have time to do that. It's, it's kind of like in a game, in a, you know, in a basketball game, it comes to the end, and as long as there's time on the clock, and you're not too far behind, as long as there's time on the clock, you got a shot. We could sink a three-pointer and get back in the game. But after the buzzer goes off, it doesn't matter if you can shoot and make a half-court shot. You get nothing for that. It's game over. And in the same way, if there's time on the clock, now the thing is, we don't know how much time's on the clock, only God does. But if there's time on the clock, you can change. You're aware that life is short. Some people aren't aware of that, and they die, and they face eternity unprepared. But if you're living, and you're listening, you can realize that there's hope, and that life is short. The dead don't know that. Verse 6, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What's his point? When, when, the, when your game is over, when life is over for an individual, there's no more life under the sun. So you can't live. Um, he's been on a wisdom search. You can't draw conclusions and live accordingly. Everything is final. So there's something, there's in some way an advantage when it's not over yet. And that should shape our lives. That's really the primary idea here. An awareness that life is short should be the shaping truth of how we live our lives. We're all going to die. 
The clock is ticking. The buzzer could go off at any time. And so if you're alive and you know that, that's a huge advantage because we can, well, we can live for the glory of God. If we know life is short, that directs, directs how we are to live. So with that in mind, and with that in mind that it's better to be alive than dead, that life is short, how should we live? See, this, this is what he's been leading up to, is to tell us how, he should, how we should live. And the context of telling us how we should live is the brevity of life. Now, here's what's very fascinating. He's about to enter into a section of the Scripture that's, that's unique in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's going to tell us to enjoy life. He's told us that kind of thing before. But he's going to give us a number of commands. It's the longest section of one after another commands in the entire book. So usually the way he writes is he gives a a few proverbs and then a few reflections like this is what I learned and this is what I saw and this is what I observed and then an occasional command dropped in there. But what he's going to do here is he's going to say there's an advantage to being alive because you know you're going to die. The implication is you're aware that life is short. You've got a huge advantage, people. You still have life. You still have time. So what should you do? In light of that, how should you live? And he's going to give us the longest section of requirements in the entire book. What should we do knowing that life is short? Verse 7. You should go. That's a command. You should go. What should you go and do? Should you go and sacrifice? Should you go and suffer? Should you go and evangelize? I think the natural thing I was thinking of, should you go and repent? I mean, if you know you don't have time, then you want to change and repent and do the right thing. But look at what he says. He gives basically, there's several verbs in here of command. Go, that's one. Secondly, because life is short, go and eat. I'm not making that up. That's what he says. Go and eat your bread with joy. Life is short, go and drink. Your wine with a merry heart. Verse 9, go and enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Go and work, do your work heartily with all your might. Go and eat, go and drink, go and enjoy your spouse, go and work hard. Do all this with joy. We're going to see he uses several phrases in here that have to do with living a joy-saturated life. It just seems like he would say, if life is short, repent. And I think that's exactly what he's saying. Because many of us in this room, if we were to live according to what he just said here, if we were to believe that that's godly living... If we were to believe that that's spiritual living, we would have to repent because we don't believe that and we don't live that way. Repenting means a turning. It's a turning of our minds. It's a turning of our belief. It's a turning of our conviction so that we think differently about God and his truth. And by thinking differently, we then act differently and we live a different life according to what he's saying. Now, we usually, I can't speak for everybody, but often we associate godly living with denial. 
And yet here he is associating godly living with joy. And he is associating godly living with enjoying specifically the things that God provides. Here's a little secret about evangelicals, of which I am one, and we are one as a church. Many of us have an ascetic streak in us, that we're given to asceticism by nature, that we naturally tend to believe deep down that we're only really pleasing God when we're uncomfortable. Unless it hurts, God couldn't be happy with it. Unless I'm suffering, God is not glorified. That the spiritual life is primarily about abstaining from physical things in particular and embracing spiritual. It's, it's a dual way of thinking. We deny the physical and we embrace the spiritual or the invisible. And that's really the godly person. The godly person is the one who goes away from the natural uh, blessings of life and lives a restricted life, a narrow life, a life of abstinence and denial, a life of rejecting the things of life, and that that's really spiritual. And yet, Ecclesiastes says something very, very different. And here's where I get nervous if this is your first time here. Last week I preached a whole message on suffering. We talk a lot about that. We believe in a sovereign God who leads his people through suffering. So I'm not, I'm not going towards believe in Jesus and you have no problems. We don't believe that because that's not what the Bible teaches. But I want to let this scripture stand on its own. That this is a biblical reality. That we are to celebrate God and to celebrate his gifts. And that is to be the flavor of someone who knows God. See, here's what we believe often, really deep down. We believe that ultimately being spiritual is all about saying no. That that's primarily the godly person, their to-do list is a list of what I'm not going to do. That the godly person is, I'm going to avoid these things. That the godly person is saying no all day long, and that that's what makes them a godly person. They're miserable, but they're godly. They're just saying no to everything. Yet that's not how Jesus lived his life. Jesus lived his life saying, I do everything and only what I hear the Father telling me to do. Jesus' life was a life of yes. It was a life of yes to the Father. And when you read the passage we just read, it's a yes passage. It's more than that. It's, yes, I'll take some of that. Thank you, Jesus. That's the Christian life. Yes, thank you, Lord, for providing that. I receive that, and I worship you because of that. That that is the character of the life that's touched by grace. It's not a lifestyle of abstaining as a lifestyle from the normal pleasures of life. It is a lifestyle of receiving all that God provides gratefully, with a worshipful heart, filled with joy, celebrating the giver, and overflowing with that so that other people would look and say, yes, I, well, what, is, what do they have going, in the, even in the middle of their sufferings? So he makes the point, our circumstances may look just like everyone else's. The righteous and the unrighteous may have the same circumstances, but how we respond to those can be very different. And the person who knows God will respond with, yes, thank you, Jesus, for all your provisions 
and the daily life will be, yes, thank you, with a smile on my face, even in times of sorrow. Even in times of sorrow, there can be an underlying joy. Now, this whole uh, ascetic mindset that what you do without, what you, what you keep yourself away from, that that somehow denying yourself the basics of life, that that's godly, that's all over the New Testament too. And, and Paul doesn't say, well, that's one option. He is totally opposed to that form because it appears spiritual, but it's wicked, he says. And so in Colossians, you have him saying, look, there's people that say, do not touch, do not taste, have nothing to do with those people. What, what, what he says is that is a dangerous belief. When they, when they bring certain restrictions about what you eat and what you drink, he says, in the name of being righteous, and it was usually had to do with abstaining. So when they're talking about abstaining from all these things, particularly food and drink, he's saying that is not the doctrine of God. Don't give in to that. He says that in 1 Timothy 4. Timothy is pastoring, and there are people who are saying these things. There are people who are not living according to Ecclesiastes. They're saying abstain, and this is what he says to them. Listen to how he describes that, that kind of teaching. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I don't want to be in that seminar. Okay, these are people in the church, or at least bumping up against people in the church, and their teaching come from demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. Now, why are they forbidding marriage? Probably what's behind that is they're saying physical is bad, spiritual is good. They're forbidding sex. can't have sex unless you're married, and, uh, biblically, and so they're forbidding marriage. That it's to abstain from sex, which would be an earthly pleasure in marriage, you know, that, is, uh, that can't be godly. And require abstinence from foods. What kind of foods? Foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So there are these religious people that are saying, if you really want to be godly, don't have sex, don't get married, don't eat this, don't eat that. You know, live this life of deprivation, and that's holiness. And, and Paul says, nonsense. God made that food. God made sex. God made marriage. God made drink. So if you really want to be godly, you receive what he gives, and you, you receive it with thanksgiving. So you're thanking God. The gift is not your God. God is your God, but you receive it gratefully. That's what he's talking about. Now, what is it here that Ecclesiastes says, since life is short, this is what you should be pursuing? Let's look at what he says. Go, it's an urgent command. Go, number one, eat your bread with joy. Now, we've seen, this is the sixth time, I think, in Ecclesiastes where he's taken time to say, enjoy food and drink he said, and work. He says that a lot. And uh, so he's saying that again today. Enjoy the gift of food. I don't, I don't know about you, but we can make a joke. Well, yeah, well, I enjoy food too much, and probably some of us do. So that could be a problem. But, but I would contend that most of us don't really enjoy food and enjoy God in the way that we're, we're called to do. Do you ever think about this, that one of the most loving gifts of God, unnecessary loving gifts of God, are taste buds? Think about that. God created you with the ability to taste and enjoy food. 
He could have created it very differently. Body needs nourishment. He could have made everything taste like water. Bland, no flavor. He could have made eating like filling up your gas tank. I mean, we could have had that. Everybody just drive through, pour a little in, and then you're done. And it's just like, I mean, who gassing up the car is not an event, um, you know, that's meaningful. It could have been just like that. But he created us with taste buds so that flavors, and as far as I know, I'm not a doctor or anything. Somebody could probably correct me on this. But as far as I know, taste buds don't um, fulfill a life-sustaining purpose. I mean, if you lost your sense of taste, you'd still live. It's not like you need it for survival. Uh, it's for pleasure. Now, maybe certain taste buds are bitter, and so we avoid something that's poison or whatever. I mean, that could be the case. Someone mentioned that to me. But, but ultimately, primarily taste buds are... Well, it's just to enjoy the food that God gives. Why? Because he's a loving God. Because God created food for us to enjoy so that we would do what does 1 Timothy say? Return thanks to God for food. And I don't think we think about that. I think meals are very functional for us in this culture and even among Christians. Not an opportunity to return praise and thanks God, thank God as we're supposed to do. This week I was trying to obey a number of these verses as I was studying them. So by combining two, my wife and I went on a date. So then I'm doing like, you know, down at verse 9 and, um, you know, trying to include them all. Just obeying God, that's what I try to do. So I'm, uh, I'm eating a steak and, uh, you know, just thinking about what a gift. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm fulfilling multiple passages. Genesis 1 says, take dominion. So I'm taking dominion over cattle that I never met, but I'm happy to eat. And uh, so uh, there's just the dominion thing going on, which is wonderful. And there's all the flavors, the provision of God that is in a, a steak. And I don't eat it. I rarely eat steak. I don't eat it a lot. I, it's not like, I, you know, I don't, most of us can't afford to eat steak all the time. So that was a, that's a special thing. Um, but what a joy. I just thought, God, how gracious you have been. And you know what? It's easy maybe to eat a steak or whatever one of your favorite foods are on a special occasion with joy. But he goes beyond that. He didn't say feast with joy. He said go and eat your bread with joy. The very basic, normal, the the staple of life. Just eat the staples and do it with joy. Appreciating what God has provided. Appreciating God's love to you. Appreciating the flavor and 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 the texture. Don't take it for granted. But eat in a God-centered way. I mean, he made the same point in chapter 9, and I made a, a silly point last Sunday. It, wasn't, it was in my notes briefly, but I developed it spontaneously um, about people who in social media take pictures of their food and uh, then display them. And I was actually advocating that that's probably a, a good idea if we want to be biblical because it demonstrates the celebration of God's basic food. So all of you who put stuff that I saw on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram, I want to thank you and invite you from now on to just personally have a moment of celebration before God that it was a, a point that was sort of tongue-in-cheek. Um, but you, you, you get that. So the meal, the food, is something to be thankful for. What does he say next? Drink your wine with a merry heart. Life is short. Go! Eat your food with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Hurry! And what does he mean when he says drink? Uh, what does he mean when he says drink your wine? I think what he means by that is to drink wine. And um, just interpreting that... Three years of seminary, and uh, that's the exegetical skills that really only a professional would have. So uh, I mean, don't try that at home. 
I'm a, tra- I'm a trained exegete. And that's what I learned, that, that wine, drink, I'm teasing, I'm teasing, drink your wine. Well, it probably means more than that, but I, I don't think it means any less than that. When we say bread, we don't mean just bread, we mean all of food. In Israel, the, the sta- a staple drink would be wine. And so I think it, it, it certainly means that, but it means more. I don't think it would be inappropriate to say dr- whatever you like to drink. Drink your coffee, drink your tea, drink your water, drink your juice, drink your soda, which in some circles would be a greater issue amongst prohibitionists than drinking wine. So uh, because that, there's a whole stand against that, uh, which probably don't need to get into. But I would say drink your soda joyfully. And drink your juice and drink your wine, whatever you are drinking. I'm going to do some teaching on Christian liberty and uh, specifically what the Bible teaches about alcohol because it's a complex issue. It's complex because the Bible, the general posture of Scripture is to affirm wine and then to throw in various warnings against it. So both are there to infer- to affirm but also to give warning about how it's, how it's used. Um, it's also complex because we live in a culture in the Bible Belt where this is, uh, there's a lot of cultural baggage that you wouldn't have if we were in Italy or something like that. So it's just different. But I want to talk about that at some point. Um, and this isn't all the Bible says about wine. One thing I would want not to be misunderstood on is uh, if you've had a, a, you know, one of the complex things is that wine can have an enslaving effect on someone who makes alcohol their god. So if you're someone who has, is an alcoholic who's struggled with alcohol abuse such that it's dominated your life, then uh, the application of this is not to go out now and drink wine. There's a place for some people, alcoholics, to say no, and that's fine. But for others, to be able to say, drink your wine with a merry heart and enjoy it, that's what, that's what he says in this text. Why do we eat our bread and drink our wine with joy? Well, he says, for God has already approved what you do. This is so key. It means a couple of things. First of all, God gives food, God gives drink to be enjoyed. He's approved. He's given you food and drink, so he's already approving it. But for the Christian, we know it means something more than that, ultimately, in Christ. It means that our entire lives are approved before God. Jesus comes and lives a perfect life. He dies for our sins. He's buried. He's raised again to new life. And if we trust him as our Savior, then we are joined to Christ. We are, the Bible says, in Christ. And God relates to us in Christ completely approved. If you're a Christian here today, God approves of you. God loves you, cares about you, welcomes you. That, that your actions, there's no sin that's separating you from a relationship with God. Because Christ has forgiven that sin and you're in Christ, you're joined to Him. And so you're, God says over your life, approved. You can not only eat and drink, but you do everything as one whose position is approved, welcomed, joined, actually joined to Christ. His Spirit living in you. I mean, there's no better news than that. We can live our life free of the burden of sin, free to be joyful in him, for he has approved us. One of the problems with asceticism is it says, I'm going to say no to this so that I can be approved by God or so that I can increase my standing in his approval. And yet the person who is free to eat or drink is the one who says, I'm already approved. That's what he's saying. Let your garments, verse 8, let your garments be always white. White garments were, uh, were clothing that was worn usually in some type of celebration. Riken in his commentary that some of you are reading, he says that when a war hero came back to a parade, he'd wear all white. 
When a slave was freed, they'd dress in all white. Why? Because it's celebratory. Uh, it's celebratory. So he's saying living, he's not saying literally wear, uh, you know, literally wear white all the time any more than he's saying literally just eat bread. But it's a figure, it, it shows that d- have a celebratory life. Dress is one celebratory, have a celebratory heart is what he's saying. That should be our approach to life. Let not oil be lacking on your head, verse 8. What is oil? Well, that's a sign of gladness as well. That's what the scripture says, that people were anointed uh, with oil and it was for gladness. Psalm 45 says, therefore God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. So there is, uh, it's a sign of joy. So eat your, eat your bread joyful to God who has provided, celebrating, drink your wine, have a merry heart when you do that. God approves of you. So if God approves of you, don't wonder if God loves me. Celebrate the freedom in a father who loves you and put on some festive clothing. It's time to celebrate. Even in difficulties, even in the difficulties of life. Remember, we are still in his hand. He still loves. He still approves. He still cares uh, for us, even when it's difficult. Have the oil of gladness. Do we literally all have to pour oil on our heads? Uh, I don't think so, but but have that attitude, the fragrance of joy. Oil was fragrant. Have the fragrance of joy, the clothing of joy, the food and the drink of joy, because you are approved. You are approved in God. This doesn't sit well sometimes with us, because we're thinking, well, that just, I don't know. I think you're supposed to be hurting for God to be happy. That's a skewed view. That's a skewed view of the Bible. What does he say next? He says a command, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. He's saying enjoy your spouse. This will work for wives and husbands as well. Uh, enjoy your spouse is what he's saying. What now, he wrote Song of Solomon as well. Is this a Song of Songs command? Well, I think it would include a Song of Songs command. Uh, joy, uh, joyful, the joyful nature of experiencing um, sex within marriage. Certainly that's part of what he's saying. But he's saying a lot more than that, I think, as well. Because actually, he doesn't say just enjoy your wife. Look at what he actually says. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. So he's saying approach life realizing the gift of companionship if you're married. Partnership, union, intimacy, friendship. He's saying, man, approach your life and enjoy your life because God's linked you with someone to enjoy your life with for support, care, encouragement, growth together in God, oneness in God. Enjoy your life together. Now someone would say, well, enjoy your life with the wife. My wife's not very enjoyable. Well, guess what? By you telling me that, I already know you're far less enjoyable than she is. The very fact you made that statement is all I need to know that if she's not enjoyable, you're ten times less enjoyable than she is for leading off with that statement. Enjoy your well, life's not enjoyable because I'm with someone who's not enjoyable. Well, look at, look at the key. What does he say? Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. How does the Bible teach that we're to love our wives, men? Paul says in Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Sacrifice, care, prefer, honor, pray for, love, nurture, protect, provide. Sacrifice 
a sacrificial love will often lead to enjoyment. It's interesting how he ties enjoy your life with your wife with love. Enjoyment and love are connected. Love and enjoy go together. And so he's saying, marriage is, and ultimately saying, marriage is a gift from God. Enjoy this. Life is short, so go enjoy your wife. Life is short, so go enjoy your life together with the companion that he has given you. Look at what he says next. The rest of the verse, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Someone said probably the rest of that is not the rest of that verse you might not want to include in an anniversary card uh, all about your vain life and all the toil part. Maybe just include the first segment in the anniversary card that I'm enjoying life with the one I love. But he's talked about that throughout. When he says vain here, it probably has the sense that it literally means life is a vapor. And so it's brief, it's short. Uh, One of the pictures of vanity that he's given is it's a vapor that appears and is gone. Like your breath on a frozen day when you breathe out and you see the vapor and then it disappears. That's your life. So life is like a vapor. Therefore, get to it, fellas. Enjoy your life with your wife now. There's no time to waste. Time to eat and drink is what he is saying in this passage. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. So whatever your various vocations are, you're working, do that working mightily. You don't have a lot of time, so get to work is what he's saying. And work is a gift from God, so we can do our work for the glory of God, enjoying God. I'm not going to develop that out. We've talked about that numbers of times in Ecclesiastes, where the toil of life is to be a joy, even if it is difficult, because we do it with God by his grace and you go to work tomorrow approved by God what if my boss doesn't like me God loves you (laughs) what if my co-workers are opposed to me God says you're approved so go work hard because you're working for him you're working for him so all of this that he's talking about you're not going to live long you're going to die so go and do this here's what I think he's saying time is short so enjoy all that God provides as one who is approved. Life is short, so enjoy all that God provides as one who is approved by God. You are God approved, so enjoy everything that he provides for us. I mean, if I opened up today the message and said, do you think it's important to enjoy your life? What would you say? Is it important to enjoy your life? I think this text would say it's not important. It's It's commanded. The holy God of the universe requires the believer to go and enjoy life as a gift from him. Notice he said that. He did say your vain life, which he has given you. He gives life. He gives provision. We are called to appreciate his gifts. And here's why this is such a serious matter, this bit of enjoying our lives. Here's why it's so serious. Because it's impossible to honor God and to please God if we don't celebrate and appreciate and receive his gifts. If you want to honor your, you know, think about this. If you give your kid, your little kid, a gift, a toy, Christmas, birthday, whatever, you give a little kid a toy, you know, what's the most honoring thing they can do? I think it's when they open it up and they get big-eyed and they look at you 
And they come and run and say, Daddy or Mommy, thank you. And then they spend the rest of the day enamored with that gift. That's honoring. If they're like, well, no, yeah, thank you, but man, it doesn't hurt, so I, you know. No, they're celebrating, they're receiving, and you feel honored. Oh, I'm so happy by that. It's very similar, it's not a one-to-one, but it's similar with God. We honor, we please, we glorify God, not by denying or abstaining from His provisions, but by receiving and celebrating His provisions for the glory of God. Well, what about fasting? Isn't that in the Bible? Yes, fasting's in the Bible. There's a time for the glory of God to abstain from food for specific purposes. What about feasting? Yes, there's times in the Bible where we're to get together and eat more than normal. So there's time where you eat more than normal for the glory of God. There's time when you eat nothing for the glory of God. But the basic of the basis of life normally, the big swatch of life in between here, that is to be lived thanking God and receiving all of his provision. So go and eat and drink and love and work with a deep joy in God. But what if I'm not enjoying my life and not enjoying those things? Then repent. Repent. Turn. Ask God to turn your thinking to see him, to see his gifts, and to respond to him with gratitude. With gratitude. Well, what about people who don't have? What about people who need the Lord? Listen, that's all over the Bible. We talk about that all the time. This doesn't mean have your own little world where you just love you and Jesus. That's not what it means at all. It's all this gratitude is to then overflow to people who have needs so that we can provide for them, so that we can invite them to know the Savior who can give them joy for eternity as well. This doesn't terminate on us. It's to overflow with care for the needy, the poor, the lost. So it doesn't terminate on us. It's to go out. But it starts... Man, it starts with like having a life that someone would be interested in. Someone who doesn't know the Lord, if our life is miserable and narrow, I'm not talking about suffering because we all have that, but I'm talking about our attitude. If it's suffering and narrow and I am so miserable, but I'm serving God, I'm passing on everything, but I'm serving God. It's not very inviting, but look what God has done to me. Look how great God is. That's inviting. That's inviting. So it, it flows out of us to others. Listen, what if you think spiritual means saying no all the time? He's spiritual. He doesn't do anything. He avoids everything. He's so spiritual. But no, he's not. He's not so spiritual. If that's us, then we need to repent and make clear. We need to be, we need to be getting a focus on what are we called to say yes to? What are we called, what has God provided that we're to receive? And how do we celebrate that in our lives? We should be saying, yes, thank you, all day long, with a smile on our face, even if there's tears at the same time, even if we're suffering. I don't mean that literally, because we do grieve. We do go through barren seasons, difficult seasons in life. But deep down, there should be an abiding joy that God has for us, which is able to say, I'm going to eat my bread with joy, even if it's my last meal. I'm going to eat my bread with joy, even if I don't have a job to go to tomorrow. There's still this underlying joy that comes from God that we are to celebrate. So if we are people who are more grumbling and complaining and abstaining, we need to be more people who are joyful and thanking and receiving and saying, thank you, Lord. I will receive that and I will honor you for that and I will love you for that. So repentance, I've never preached a passage quite like this in the Bible. 
So repentance is pretty interesting on this one. I mean, for some of us, you, you need to go have a meal today. That's really repentance. Now, don't go out to a restaurant and put it on a credit card if you can't afford it. So I'm not saying go, go for the sake of God and go into great debt, finding the great, most expensive meal you can. I'm not saying that, but you, some of us need to go have a meal and take a moment and enjoy it and enjoy our company that we're with and thank God. And celebrate. And if there's a tendency to feel guilty and should I be and uh, that's a carb. Hey, he specifically said, go eat bread. He said, go eat bread. That's what he said. Now, there's a time to diet, too. I don't there's a time to go on a low fat or a low carb or a uh, a low vegetable diet or whatever, <laughs> whatever um, high ice cream, whatever it is. There's a time to do. I'm not dieting is important. We do need to take care of our bodies for the glory of God. That's a whole other teaching. That's in the Bible, too. We have to balance all of this. But there's a time to not always feel guilty and can I drink this and how much sugar? I've got to read every label because there might be some sugar in there and oh, there's one preservative. There's a time to say, go eat your bread and be joyful and thank God sometimes. So I just need to relax and ease up a little bit because God's not just glorified that you read every label. Oh, they read the label. They're glorifying me. Sometimes you just need to go and eat. And you need to go drink some wine with a merry heart. Don't drink too much, but you need to drink with a merry heart. Some of us need, you know what repentance is for some people in the room? Here's repentance. Some of the men in the room need to go home today and you need to figure out where you're having a getaway with your wife and call and get the child care arranged and then go somewhere, wherever your wife likes, for an overnighter or two and get out and say, we're going to thank God for our relationship. I'm not going to sit here and grumble and go, there's some ladies clapping on the third row. Okay, I've got to get a witness from the ladies in the room. But uh, that's it. Well, that doesn't sound very spiritual. Like we paid money for a hotel and we had a nice dinner and, I don't know, somebody else was watching our kids. Yeah, that could be eminently spiritual. Enjoy your life with your wife. Build that companionship and that relationship and that intimacy together. Some of us need to go to work tomorrow with a smile on our face so that the people in the office go, what happened to him? That's a, that's a complainingest, grumpiest Eeyore in the whole office. Johnny Raincloud walked in again, but he's smiling today. What happened? You went to work thanking God, doing it all with my might. I'm approved. I don't care what you pay me. I don't care what you think about me. I'm approved by God, and so I'm working with joy in my heart. That's repentance on a passage like this. That's a great repentance. So we want to avoid the two extremes. We don't want to forbid enjoyment of God's gifts and be an ascetic or a legalist. That's one ditch. There's another ditch I didn't talk about today, but just, just so we're clear here. We don't want to be in this ditch over here either, which says, I eat food so much I'm a glutton. I drank and got drunk. That's wrong. Getting drunk is wrong. My wife is everything to me. So my spouse is my idol. And if she doesn't do just what I want or she doesn't affirm me, then I'm depressed because she's my God and not God. That's wrong. I work so much, everything's in my life. That's workaholism. That's offensive to God. So if we take the gifts and make them God, that's wrong. If we deny the gifts and don't receive them with joy, that's wrong. But if we're in the middle, then we can be like Jesus. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus. He came eating and drinking. And you know what the religious people said? He is a glutton and a drunkard. The sinners loved it. God's here eating and drinking. The sinners loved it, but the religious people hated it because he can't do that and be religious, be righteous. But Jesus came eating and drinking. Children came to Jesus. I do not think Jesus was miserable his whole life. It's all no, no, denial, denial, misery. If kids are running to him, he's got to be happy. He's got to be happy. 
Sinners are comfortable with him. Jesus is saying yes to the Father. Yes, he wept over Jerusalem. Yes, he pulled away at times, for sure. But there is a a life approach where he is doing these things. Eating and drinking with joy. Garments that are white and oil on our head. I'm going to close with this. Time is short. Time is short. Here's what I love about Ecclesiastes. He does all of this philosophical wrangling. He says at one point, I can't even sleep at night because I'm trying to figure out the secret things of God. This guy just wrecked himself trying to figure out life. And you know where he comes to now where he gives the most commands? I tried to figure it out. I couldn't. So here's the biggest command section I'm going to give you in the whole book. Go and eat. Go and drink. Go and love your wife or your husband. Go work hard for the glory of God with joy in your heart. It's pretty simple. And as you're doing so, may our lives draw those who don't know him to him. Here's an example of a guy that lived this way. Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German reformer, and Martin Luther said a lot of things you can't say in church either. I think he was a little bit like Ecclesiastes. He said a lot of things. But I read this comment. I think this is, a, this is the lifestyle of this passage. Here's what a biographer said about Luther and his faith and how it worked for him. He says, Luther's faith was simple enough to trust that after a conscientious day's labor, so that's doing it with all your might. So here was Luther. He believed that if you, after a hard day's work, a Christian father could come home and eat his sausage. He was German. A Christian father could come home and eat his sausage, drink his beer, play his flute, sing with his children, and make love to his wife all to the glory of God. That's this passage. That's what it is. It's being able to do all of those things with our children, with our work, after a conscientious day work, music, food, and he still lived a life preaching the gospel and affecting more people. It'd be hard to, be hard to think of someone whose life affected more people with the free grace of God than that. And so he still had a life that overflowed to many. May God give us that life. May we repent of our asceticism. May we avoid idolatry, making the gifts our God. May we live a compelling life for we are approved by God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.